I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. This is Bill. Welcome aboard to episode 17 of Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. Today is Memorial Day mailbag. Since I inaugurated this podcast in September of last year, I have gotten a number of communications and uh, mostly email. And that email is cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. So um, I urge you to uh, send me constructive critiques, opinions, um, offerings, or suggestions, recommendations for future podcasts. Let me know. I'd be really interested in hearing from my audience what direction they'd like me to take. So, and I'm always asked inevitably by most of the people who get in touch with me, Bill, what books are you reading? Because I'm always reading books. Well, it just so happens that I read several books at a time. And I discovered that Jeffrey Cox, whose two books on Guadalcanal, which was Morning Star, Midnight Sun, the early Guadalcanal, Solomon's campaign of World War II, August to October 1942, and then his second volume, Blazing Star, Setting Sun, the Guadalcanal, Solomon's campaign, November 1942 to March 1943, uh, a new third volume has come out in 2023 called Dark Water, Starry Skies. I love his titles. The Guadalcanal, Solomon's campaign, March to October 1943. Those first two volumes on Guadalcanal were just splendid, and it was a great accompaniment to Jacob Hornfisher's book, Neptune's Inferno, which covered the more so the naval aspects of this campaign. And this covers pretty much the, um, the naval, ground, and air campaigns, and it is splendid. So I haven't started that third volume because I've gone back to read one of Jeffrey Cox's early books. He's an attorney, not a historian professionally. But he does a great idea of gathering evidence, and it has a real great narrative flow. This one is called Rising Sun, Falling Skies, the disastrous Java Sea campaign of World War II, which talks about December 1941 and January, February 1942, where the allies in the uh, environs of Indonesia, the Philippines, and such just got their asses handed to them by the Japanese and what many historians refer to as their centrifugal strategic um, military campaigns that they conducted in 41 and 42. Very interesting. Uh, I, I haven't finished the book. I'm probably a third through it. I highly recommend it to everybody. And as a result of that, I, um, I'm going to continue to read Cox's books to include that third volume I just mentioned. I'm also reading a book by Alex Epstein called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which I find scintillating. In other news, I will be at the Military Operations Research Society annual symposium, of which I am the chairman of a working group, and also presenting uh, a couple um, papers. And then I will be fulfilling the week following the time that I will be in New York. I'm flying to Boston for business. 
And in that week, I will be able to fulfill one of my bucket list dreams, which is to travel and walk on Battle Road, Lexington and Concord, since I was steeped in that lore of what happened April 19th, 20th and 21st, 1775, when I was with the Appleseed organization as a shoot boss here in Arizona. So man, I'm, I'm just really excited about that. And that is going to be a tremendous boon. So this episode will be released on Memorial Day. And it's always a sad day for me, because I don't think it's any time for celebration. I think it's a, a massive existential wake. I am, of course, a retired army officer. So I've been there and done that. And since 1775, there have been approximately 1.35 million deaths and total U.S. casualties of approximately 2.8 million since we've been at war as a country. The deaths could fill a lake with about 1.7 million gallons of blood, which could fill a city swimming pool that was 30 feet deep and 275 feet at each side. The deaths on the other side in the belligerent camp are exponentially larger by any standard when one examines the history. I'm often reminded of J.R.R. Tolkien, one of my favorite authors, in his novel, The Two Towers, quote, war must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who, de- who devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, end of quote. And of course, one of my notions is that the only just war is the war fought to defend your own soil. In essence, not only are we asked to memorialize conflicts that always manage to strengthen the government's power on the other side, we are exposed to a constant drumbeat of protecting our freedom, yet no existential threat to the USA has existed since the cessation of hostilities with the UK in 1814. The celebration of Memorial Day I hate that word, should not be about soldiery. It should be a mass wake and reflection on the untold millions of innocents detained, kidnapped, injured, napalmed, firebombed, incinerated, shot, mutilated, tortured, and murdered by the barbaric and naked grasping of the American central government for ever-increasing power and control at home and abroad. So enough darkness. On to the mailbag. And first off, since the inauguration of this podcast, this fortnightly podcast, last September. Both Scott Horton of the uh, Libertarian Institute and Antiwar.com and Prof. CJ from Prof. CJ's Dangerous History were kind enough to have me on their programs, and that really gave a boost to my listenership. So my heartfelt thanks to both of those gentlemen, who I hold in such high esteem, not only for their intellectual tenor, and horsepower, but also for the moral high ground that they occupy consistently in their podcasts. When I um, call my listeners out by name, I'm simply going to use an abbreviation of the first letters of their uh, first and last name so that they can retain their anonymity as it, as it is. So I, I've, I'm going to go through uh, a number of the emails that I've received, and uh, one of them was from RL, I now live in Kentucky, not yet sure if I'll make Moore's West Point next year, which is what I was just describing where I'm going to be in New York this 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 June for a week, which is at West Point, because the Military Operations Research Society holds their 
annual symposium at one of the military academies every year. So here's one of my listeners who I hope to actually um, see in the flesh at uh, Moore's this year. Seven wrote me with a kind note talking about um, how he was searching for podcasts that were more academic in nature, but those that I found, his quote, seemed to be closer to conference proceedings or prepper strategy intermixed with some academics. You seem to have a solid plan for the future of the podcast, and I look forward to hearing more of what you have to teach, end of quote. Indeed, seven I do have. As a matter of fact, I have fortnightly podcast programmed out through the middle of 2024 right now. But I'm always sort of shifting and changing those, for instance, as those who have seen my T.E. Lawrence podcast, which I thought would be three, but I think is going to be more than that, that uh, I'm going to be doing more and treating those as uh, separate entities or maybe cross-mixing them over time. But I'm trying to be as thorough in my coverage as possible. And I do think that I'm filling a an empirical gap in Irregular Warfare, which instead of the triumphalist nationalist narrative, I am questioning the very pillars and foundations of coin as practiced by the West in the 20th and 21st century. And of course, I will go back in time as this podcast matures. So thanks a lot, Seven. JP writes me and and I was amused by the title of his uh, his email. It read "Super Anti Fragilistic" because I talked about the notion of anti fragility and fragility, whereas I suggest that all counterinsurgencies are fragile, and most, if not all, insurgencies are anti fragile. Uh, it's funny because quote scared me for a moment. Thought you were about to get all PC on us. End of quote. Quote another good show though. In my opinion, most people really don't understand the tribal dynamic in Afghanistan or anywhere else for that matter. Of course, tribalism didn't help the European royals too much, as they still fought for a while as if it was a big game of chess or risk to them until the Romanov clan bought it. And sort of unrelated to Chasing Ghosts, but I did receive a, um, a congratulatory listener by the name of MH who said, My name is fill in the blank. And I would like to thank you for creating a new podcast, Chasing Ghosts, as I've always enjoyed it. Uh, he appreciated my guest appearances on other people's shows. My series on stoicism that I created with Brett, my gosh, that was uh, eight, nine, ten years ago. I did a six or seven part um, stoicism series with Brett Veneau on School Sucks Podcast. He says, I re-listen to it periodically it is absolutely evergreen, evergreen content. Thank you so much. And of course, he also manages to mention a Lysander Spooner reader that for years I have been promising my readers I would put together. And I have not because I am naturally lazy, but it is on my bucket list of things to achieve, which is that I would take all 3,000 plus pages of the published works of Lysander Spooner and annotate those. But I haven't gotten around to it, so there it is. I got an email from ASC where he was saying, I would really like you to cover the Boer problems in the future and the American aboriginals as a completely different problem set altogether in the uh, the 19th century. Well, I do plan on covering those in future podcasts. As a matter of fact, this uh, this this whole aboriginal American genocide that took place for, starting in the 16th century 
and then ending probably a little early in the 20th century, was a concerted campaign by the American government, even when they were on the Atlantic seaboard, to secure that through any means necessary to include genocide. Thanks. This one from listener E.F. He says, concerning English language material about Paul von Leto Vorbeck, he popped up as a footnote in my dissertation research. As you said, there's very little in-depth material on his exploits in the English language. The late Colonel John Boyd, who we've discussed on this podcast before, discussed him to a small degree in his Patterns of Conflict briefing. The most up-to-date version of the briefing can be found here, and then he shows me where to find it. Uh, and he does mention, quote, at least one Israeli scholar has published some material on von Leto Vorbeck as well. FYI, while the Israeli government and military use Hebrew as their official language, Israeli universities use English for scholarly publication, and the IDF has multiple think tanks that are operated by Israeli universities, which published almost all their work in English. Aiten Shamir and uh, EF and I have discussed this in text over uh, a number of things, too. Discusses him in his book on Mission Command. Long story short, von Leto Vorbeck was one of a handful of European military officers that helped organize the Agenaz OCS program during the mandate period. That would be the late 1940s. Actually, Shamir's book does a good long-term examination of the leadership development aspects of the Agena IDF as a transition from an insurgency into a state-operated maneuver-based army and into its current counterinsurgency problems, end of quote. What I find really interesting about all of this is that, boy, I'm getting um, great conversations with readers, great suggestions, and I wanted to uh, thank you once again for the listenership that I'm gifted with. This is from D.F., I wish to express my admiration and enjoyment of your wonderful podcast, Chasing Ghost. Thank you, DS. Uh, quote, your succinct and well-read insight into the most fascinating authority subject is truly wonderful. And as an enthusiastic amateur historian myself, I am an enthusiastic amateur historian also. I found many of my misconceptions about irregular and guerrilla warfare dispelled in sense that I've gr- gained a greater understanding of that. Now, here's what's interesting. That being as it may, and as a South African and an Afrikaner, and I am also one of Afrikaner blood, I write because I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts and ideas to the singular success of the British Army in the Second Boer War, which happened at the turn of the 20th century. During the First Boer War in the latter part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th. Against my ancestors who, though they were motivated to well-suited insurgents in a country whose rugged and varied terrain lends itself to such operations, were eventually utterly suppressed and conquered by an early form of what can only be termed rudimentary counterinsurgency. End of quote. I would would emphasize that many have heard me call Great Britain, I am a reluctant Anglophile, the barbed wire empire. And in this case, they are the ones who created the concentration camps. As a matter of fact... DS goes on to say that very thing, where he says, quote, of course, this will also touch upon the usage of concentration camps and the destruction of civilian property and the displacement of the Boer populations that provided the basis of support to the Boer commandos. Why were these heavy-handed tactics successful here in South Africa and so singularly unsuccessful in other places and contexts in later years? Thank you, DS. That is food for thought, and that is something that I am going to... um, continue to think about and will probably include when I cover the Boer Wars in the future. DS and I 
corresponded, and I mentioned Tom Asquith, and he said, quote, I am also disturbed to discover that I had never heard of the odious Mr. Asquith until now. And it is most revealing to see that the Wikipedia article and a number of other web pages that first come up regarding Mr. Asquith seem to contain an entirely sanitized and insufficient account of what you describe. It says more of the man's rowing career than about his work as an imperial jailer and torture architect. I urge all my listeners to look up one Mr. Tom Asquith and you will be horrified. A.D. writes me, says, quote, I'm a fan of your podcast. I grew very interested in the subject of irregular warfare after hearing you on Prof. CJ's podcast. And uh, props out to Prof. CJ. Thank you. And if you don't listen to Dangerous History podcast now, you are missing out. I was always intrigued by the ability of small units of regulars to carry out successful operations against much larger forces. I grew up in the Bush Wars and was puzzled by the conventional response to irregular tactics in Afghanistan, despite the fact that I am somewhat of a scholar, not a military tactician. Thank you for putting this fascinating podcast together. Anyway, he offers me a few ideas. Uh, he wants me to do an episode on Mad Mike Hoare and the history of mercenaries. Yes, that's in the future. He would like me to do an episode on Mao and Ho Chi Minh and their guerrilla campaigns. Yes, that's in the future. Uh, can you do an episode or two on the French and Indian War and the irregular warfare on the borderlands of what is now Appalachia? Yes, to both of those. French and Indian War, the Cousins War, which occurred before 1775, when the British, after two years of stalemates and defeats, managed to best the Spanish and the French on the North American continent and assumed suzerainty by 1765. What that set into play was not only the American Revolution, but the Spanish and French yen for revenge which would make it so that that American revolution would succeed, and uh, we will treat that in the future. Uh, As far as Appalachia, yes, very much so. I'm very interested in that. He wants me to do an episode of the World War II Polish Resistance. I will probably do an episode on Mordecai Anilowicz in the future. Uh, I'll have to program that. Thank you, A.D. VP writes me, and he says, could you please cast some of your perspective and historical knowledge on the war on drugs and the counterinsurgency failure resources now being redirected towards the civilian possession of firearms? Don't know yet. Um, What I'm trying to do is treat the history, and I will most likely treat the historical aspects of the war on drugs. The historical aspects of the Western war on private possession of firearms ownership would be interesting, and I'm going to put that in my memory locker for the future. Thank you, VP. S.A. writes me, and uh, he says, quote, I have been thoroughly enjoying your podcast on Irregular Warfare and look forward to future episodes, end quote. Thank you. Quote, in your latest episode, you touched on a topic that I was thinking about, and it's the notion of irregular warfare nomenclature on counter-revolution versus insurgency. I understand the American view that counter-revolution was not ideal phrasing due to the birth of the USA resulting in a secessionist revolutionary movement. As a matter of fact, end of quote, what I want to emphasize is that when we have the American Civil War, 1860 to 1862, that is the second American Revolution. The first American Revolution is actually 1775 to 1783, and it was a secessionist movement that was a divorce from London in being a colony. Now, going back to Essay's email, quote, however, in my non-expert opinion, I feel there's a distinction between a counter-revolution and anti-insurgency guerrilla warfare. 
my four examples of counter-revolutionary activity are Lord Dunmore in Virginia during the Revolution, the Vendee of France during the French Revolution, the White Russians during the Russian Revolution, and Franco during the Spanish Civil War. As you have pointed out, irregular warfare takes on elements of conventional warfare. Lord Dunmore's operations in Virginia during the American Revolution seem to have been small-scale anti-insurgent warfare, so although counter-revolutionary, it was precise and ultimately ineffective, something rather modern like we see today, which is a large empire using specialized forces to attack insurgents. The remaining three examples were more or less large-scale irregular wars far for that, uh, that had a lot of conventional fighting. The Vendee, Russian, Spain are all multi-faction fighting and overlapping conventional warfare with irregular warfare elements which involved revolutionary versus counter-revolutionary forces. They are, unlike the American Civil War, as that conflict had the central government fighting intact, unlike the other conflicts where the central government ceased to exist and the ensuing chaos created the opposing forces, or in the case of the white Russians, the remnants of the former central government. Spain, being the only successful counter-revolution of the examples, it's not usually a successful endeavor like fighting insurgents in coin fashion, which is normally not successful. Uh, Amen to that. Anyhow, very interesting. And I thought that uh, when it comes to the notion of counter-revolutionary warfare, what that tends to be is not cross-state. It tends to be intrastate. It tends to be where a splinter group within an existing governance, within governed borders that they shared previously, decides either to go on its own or to topple the central government so that the insurgency can take over for what the central government was doing in the first place. So with that, uh, thank you, S.A. Great letter. Here's reader, listener, R.N., I'm a big fan of your Regular Warfare podcast. I first came across your work on the Dangerous History podcast. Again, thank you, Prof. CJ. Quote, I must say that I've been interested in this subject ever since my time in the service, Army Infantry, 2002-2007, 101st Airborne Division, 502nd Infantry, and I am a third of the 502nd alumnus from the 101, so thank you, RN, as not only a fellow uh, comrade-in-arms, but also a member of the 101st. As a lowly infantryman, I felt the brunt of bad policy and martial malpractice. Thank you for employing that term, by the way, RN. I always knew that it was wrong. I even tried to study this in university when I got my degree in political science. Unfortunately, the courses were sparse. He says, quote, I learned more in this podcast than in a whole college semester. End of quote. In RN, I am eternally grateful for that, that, um, that salutation. Thank you so much. Anyway. I'm writing you for an exhaustive reading list on the subject. End of quote. RN, that is in the offing. And as you'll notice, whenever I have my podcast, I tend to recommend either reading that I read for the podcast that I am broadcasting that particular fortnight or books that I'm interested in that may not even have anything to do with what I'm uh, podcasting on. But there it is. So I will continue to do that. Uh, Once I have a site established, which I haven't done yet because of my naturally lazy inclinations, I will be sure to put a comprehensive book list up that is not only married to the individual podcast, but maybe even some general reading or listening that I really enjoy. So again, RN, thanks. Strike fear. Last year, I I received this from AP. And he says, Dear Scott and Bill, because he also sent it to Scott Horton, 
after hearing me on Scott Horton's show when we did a um, he did a two and a half hour interview with me, which I would commend to you. Uh, he he uh, he says, quote, I recently listened to Bill's appearance on the Scott Horton show to discuss various interesting, and insightful topics. I'm a regular listener to Scott's show and love the work that you're doing. I'm also reading enough already, which I highly recommend Scott Horton's book. I will also definitely check out Bill's Chasing Ghosts podcast, end of quote. And he says, however, there was one topic that you both mentioned of which I'd like to provide some clarification. The world is full of history, and you both have an extremely thorough knowledge of many events. However, regarding the events of the Sri Lankan Civil War, there are a few details I'd like to clarify on this extremely brutal and impactful conflict. And I am so glad that he provided this corrective, and I'm going to read this paragraph. This is a rather long email. I will not burden you with uh, all of it. I find it really interesting what he had to say, but I don't want to uh, make this podcast much longer than it has to be. Quote, the Tamils in Sri Lanka were a Hindu ethnic group that had settled the outer horseshoe in Sri Lanka, as you mentioned. The Tamils are originally an ethnic group in India and are the dominant people in the state of Tamil Nadu, about 70 million in India. Tamils have a proud history as well as a very old language and literature that is distinct from Hindi. Although, as you can imagine, debating over the Tamils' history and impact is often used as propaganda for many extremists. The Tamil diaspora is all over the world, including Singapore, Malaysia, the United States, very small and generally part of the Indian community at large, and Sri Lanka, where they made up 10% of the population. Madras Chennai is located in Tamil Nadu. The Sinhalese, the majority ethnic group of Sri Lanka, were Buddhist. So it was Buddhist versus Hindu. And from these, we got the LTTE, which were the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Ilam, which is Tamil Ilam means Tamil Sri Lanka. They had some Marxist ideologies. Leftists will always be infighting. But it still had a major nationalist, ethnic, and Hindu core. The conflict obviously has a very long 25-year history and bloody history, 100,000 deaths, that I cannot do justice to. It was extremely violent and only terminated in 2009. As you can imagine, the Tamil's relative wealth due to trading, coastal proximity, and other factors, combined with the majority Sinhalese control, led to a lot of fighting, state pogroms, and discrimination that eventually boiled over into the brutal civil war that pioneered the use of some absolutely insane and brutal suicide bombing techniques. End of quote. Those suicide bombing techniques would include um, boat-borne, airborne, um, bus-borne, you name it. It was really savage war. And what interests me about the Tamil conflict in Sri Lanka is that it may be one of the very few cases where you actually had a successful counterinsurgency. So I hope to treat that in the future, and I will probably reach out to AP because the guy seems to really have a tremendous amount of knowledge of that particular conflict. And I am not a, um, a reader or speaker of Hindi, so that will probably be helpful to me. So again, AP, thank you for the, I just read excerpts from the email. You sent me a rather long one, uh, very insightful, terrific. And, and I appreciate the correspondence. Thank you. I heard from a correspondent by the name of uh, JB. I am proud to announce that he and I will be relative neighbors in the move that I am making from this side of the country to the other side of the country in the fall of this year. Um, he says, quote, my name is 
JB, and I heard about your Chasing Ghosts podcast via an interview you did with Scott Horton recently. Again, thanks, Scott. have to admit that I have since binged all the Chasing Ghosts podcasts that you have available. I'm particularly interested in Irregular Warfare and even more interested in the perspective you are bringing to the topic. So I'll spare you my history and background for now, except to say that I'm a graduate of the Joint Special Operations University of MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida, during my time on staff at U.S. SOCOM, end of quote. Uh, Joint Special Operations University, uh, uh, like West Point's Irregular Warfare Institute, would would probably not allow me to even um, cast my shadow in their hallways or their university because I am a heretic, a non-believer, and a skeptic of the entire coin enterprise. And JSOU, the Joint Special Operations University, happens to be just the opposite. He goes on to say, quote, I consider myself a student of military history, in particular U.S. foreign policy as it relates to conflicts, wars, We've been involved in since World War I. I must admit that in many years of what I was led to believe was a sound education IW coupled with critical thinking and expert analysis from many a guest speaker or subject matter expert. End of quote, because uh, JB goes on to say that I think he took almost every course in the curriculum at JSOU. So my, my hat's off to you. Uh, quoting again, I have not heard anyone take the position that you have posited increasingly in the last few years of my own self-guided research and education, however, I myself have become quite pessimistic and or, let's say, less than enthusiastic about our own, the U.S., broader efforts with respect to IW. What you are doing in examining the historical context, practical application, and net results within the realm of IW is absolutely critical in my opinion. Personally, I think many in the IW sphere exist in an echo chamber or are so invested in broader U.S. military tactical acumen that they can, can't see the forest through the trees. At risk of being overly long-winded here, I will just say that I applaud your boldness in taking the subject matter head-on, despite the obvious opposition to your premises. Keep on fighting the good fight, and this regard, I look forward to more episodes and your sound analysis therein. End of quote. JB, thank you so much. And then he goes on, as far as the question goes, if I may, I'd like to ask you if you are planning to do an episode relating to the measures of effectiveness or how you measure success in general terms but also more specifically as it relates to individual examples of USIW campaigns. And of quote, JB, I absolutely want to do that because I want to get into the, the tautology, the framework, the logic, or maybe illogic, of what, a, what it takes to say this is correct, this is the visionary framework, this is what we've achieved. Measures of effectiveness is something as a as a working um, systems engineer, measures of effectiveness simply means what measures am I going to use in my metrics to tell me that I'm on the right path and that I will achieve the intent and vision that I originally had taken this project under or number of projects under. So uh, JB, huzzah, thank you. I will take that on and thanks a lot. Uh, A.H. writes me, and by the way, I had made mention of meeting, physically meeting, and um, they even um, bought my lunch here locally where I live in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, a whole passel of, of uh, right-thinking and bright young men. And um, A.H. had written me, and we made arrangements to meet each other. We all met. It was tremendous. And in his email to me originally, he said, I've enjoyed your content for years. I first heard you on the Dangerous History podcast because I did a six-part series with Prof. CJ on Irregular Warfare, which originally was going to start out as a 
as a um, a a single episode, but turned into six. He says, uh, "quote I especially like that you are cognizant of the importance of what we call things. For example, the war to save Joseph Stalin. I wrote that in my notes differently uh, recently." Attacks on words, which may seem trivial, are actually root-level assaults and need to be understood as such. And it turns out we did meet in April of this year, he and his colleagues, and wow, they they really did uh, give me some hope because my hope has been dashed for the last three generations and their ability to think critically, face a world that is against them, and see a future that is brighter, not dimmer. So, A.H., hats off to you. Uh, BB wrote me, uh, quote, thanks for doing your podcast. I found it very interesting so far. I live in Israel and work as a tour guide of Israel. Therefore, I have a strong interest in Israeli history. I would appreciate episodes on the two topics of the conflict among the British Zionists and Arabs during the British Mandate for Palestine, 1918 and 1948, and the conflict between Israel and Palestinians since 1948. Any plans to cover these topics? End of quote. Thanks, BB. You know, uh, no, I'm, 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 I may talk about Irgun and Agana and Israeli activities in the 30s and 40s and Arab activities in those times in the British Mandate, which would become Israel and Palestine. But I really think that Martyr Made Podcast and his really long series of episodes called Fear and Loathing in the New Jerusalem, that's Martyr Made, just like it sounds, it's uh, it's incredible. I, I I I couldn't do justice to expand upon that. So my recommendation to BB is listen to that. And I think he responded to me by saying that yes, indeed he had. But I will cover aspects, but I certainly won't do an in do an in detail historical treatment of that because I think it's been done better by other folks. So thanks for that. I received this from. Someone who will remain anonymous, quote, I am a junior naval officer at an inflection point in my career. I've been on active duty for 10 years and have approximately two months to decide if I'll commit to at least another three or four. Your recent CG episode on moral injury and moral hazard resonates with me. Now, I think that he's talking about my companion podcast called The Dash, which is a, an examination and a podcast on stoicism in which I talked about moral injury and war. So that may be where that came from. And he says, what would be your recommendation be to someone who has a more realist POV on the nature of our business, in this case, the military? Is it worth a man's time to endeavor to make a martial organization better from the inside? End of quote. Here's my answer to that. Having spent a quarter century uh, in uniform, both uh, active and reserve, but I, I am a retired active duty army officer, I don't think you can change the system from the inside. You can do the very best you can to protect or influence that tiny organization you may be a member of in the enormity of the DOD. But as far as doing the right thing within your organization, that's within your power. As changing the organization itself in the larger sense, absolutely impossible. And unfortunately, I can't think of the um, the precise quote or law but it might have been Robert Conquest who said that all large bureaucracies have a tendency to go left over time. And I think that is the truth with the DOD as we see it today. Uh, let's see here. So TSG wrote me. 
And he said, any th- quote, any thoughts on covering Major Jim Grant and his one tribe at a time operational concepts and proofs in Afghanistan as relevancy for modern insurgency and foreign internal defense? End of quote. He's talking about a book by um, called American Spartan by Ann Scott Tyson. And uh, this was an SF soldier officer in Afghanistan who went his own way, sort of went rogue doing the right thing and was punished appropriately enough because that's the nature of the business by the SF community, the special operations community and the army at large for having done what he did. There's a little bit of Lorenzian conceit, but Lorenzian brilliance in what major Jim Grant did. So I'll give him that. But ultimately as is my want uh, there's a certain impossibility to successful coin conducted by Western organizations. So I will probably cover that in the future. So thanks for that. Uh, T.A. writes me and he says, quote, being a male and graduated in 1989, Red Dawn has always been a favorite of mine. I'm not sure why it gets bad reviews. That said, I wondered why the rock with the names on it was named Partisan Rock. That had a commie sound to it. An American name would be Freedom Rock or Liberty Rock. Do you find it funny that it was named after that? Do you think the author was hinting at America's slide towards socialism? End of quote. Uh, T.A., I, I, um, I don't have any problem using the word partisan. As a matter of fact, in, in Special Forces for the um, 1950s and, and 60s when it came to unconventional warfare, you would even find the, the, the word partisan employed in the field manuals and such and, and the writing at that time. Uh, we, we had partisans who fought both against national socialists in World War II and communists. And what you find with the national socialists in Western Europe, for instance, and even in Eastern Europe after Barbarossa kicked off in 1941, they would have what they called anti-bandit forces because that's how they referred to partisans. So, nah, I don't. I don't think. Uh, I, I don't think it, it. It has a commie sound to it. And then your question: Do you think the author, in this case, the director Milius, was hinting at America's slide towards socialism? There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, John Milius did some wonderful films, to include Red Dawn, to include one of my favorite films of all time, uh, The Man Who Would Be King, with Sean Connery. And uh, and others, uh, just a, a a terrific film. If you if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. And there's also a a documentary on the director John Milius, who was one of those rara avis in Hollywood, a right of center thinker. Uh, HD writes me quote just discovered your podcast. Absolutely refreshing. Exactly what I was looking for in regards to irregular warfare. I'm finishing up episode six currently. I purchased War of the Flea and Fry the Brain. I recommend Fry the Brain, War of the Flea. I would get a summary of that. Uh, Both of the books pertain to guerrilla warfare. One as a whole and the other on the sniper aspect. I was curious if you've read these two books. And yes, I have, HD. And would absolutely love to hear your breakdown and thoughts on the matter. I am going to do that in the future. I probably won't cover War of the Flea in detail because of its communist rhetoric. But Fry the Brain is so interesting. I even brought my copy of it to Staples to have it uh, binder bound where they punch holes in it and, and make it so I can lay it flat like I have some of my my um, 
targeting books and shooting books that I take to the range. And he says, uh, quote, I actually feel my IQ points increase while listening to your episodes as opposed to the alternative self-promotion smoothing of my brain with some others I've tried. End of quote. Thank you so much, HD. And he says, sincerely, a former crayon eater who learned to read, which means, of course, a crayon eater is a former member of Uncle Sam's Misguided Children, with whom my youngest son spent four years and thankfully got out. Uh, this is from N. Has the most interesting email address. Love it. Quote, my name is Nathaniel. I heard of you and your podcast from an interview you did with Scott Horton. After the interview, I found your Chasing Ghost podcast. I've been listening to it. It's quite informative, and you know something is quality when it causes you to think and generate questions. So you've said that counterinsurgency is dumb. Maybe at, maybe at the end, at, at, end of quote. Maybe and it, it is dumb, but I think I've gone further than that. There's a number of reasons why I consider it so bad. Uh, he goes on, almost always counterproductive in that it feeds the insurgency in the very few times that it has worked. It's been fantastically brutal and bloody, i.e. Britain against the Boers. In the 21st century, where everyone has a camera in their pocket, that kind of counterinsurgency victory just isn't viable. You said that the best way to win a counterinsurgency is not get involved in one. Well, my question is, what if you don't have a choice? End of quote. And we all have choices. And the choice in this case is that you simply don't get involved because it doesn't pan out. It's simply not going to work. He goes on, quote, In the 21st century, we don't have guerrilla wars where a small group militarily invades and overthrows a government, i.e. Cuba and Castro, or the failed Bay of Pigs. Now the U.S. and CIA have the National Endowment for Democracy, and they can use color revolutions to overthrow governments like Georgia, Ukraine, Serbia, and a whole host of other countries. Color revolutions seem to have the same goals and outcomes of guerrilla wars, insurgency of old, just without the bloodshed. And trying to fight one of those has many of the same drawbacks as fighting against a traditional guerrilla war insurgency. Mass imprisonment, murderous civilians, violation of civil rights, all are the fuel for insurgency. He puts an exclamation point there, appropriately enough. End of quote. America has been involved in color revolution since the Philippines in 1986. This color revolution notion some have even observed or suggested could have occurred in the United States in the electoral process at the federal level in 2020 and 2022. History will tell us whether that's the case or not. But his entire point is laudable, and I agree completely that color revolutions may be something that I'm going to examine more thoroughly as a history thereof and an examination of just how powerful these notions are Maybe they are a new form of insurgency and or counterinsurgency that is more effective in combination with both non-kinetic and kinetic means. We shall see. So, in hats off to you. I think those are sound observations. CF writes me, quote, I am an avid listener of your podcast following your interview with Scott Horton. Thank you for making it. I do think you could flow narrative better. There is no doubt about that. And your presentation is still pretty scattershot and unfocused. I would have liked a lot more detail on the French Indochina portion, end of quote. You know, I really appreciate when people write me and say, you know, I'm new at this, by the way, doing podcasting. When I started last September, never podcasted in my life. I have done interviews online with folks, but I've done it with folks who invited me onto their own programs to do that. So 
I want everybody to know that if you have constructive criticism for me and it's substantive and it's not mean-spirited and it's well-mannered, as CF's is, terrific. Thank you, and I, and I want more of that. In the interest of protecting CF's identity, because he was quite revelatory in how he described himself and such in here, I don't want to read uh, parts of this, but he says, quote, at any rate, four Muslim governments faced Islamist insurgencies and beat them. Algeria in the 1990s, where the Islamists won an election but were not allowed to take power. Egypt in the 1980s, Saudi Arabia in 03 to 04, and Syria in the early 80s and again in the 2010s. In each of these instances, local governments were able to leverage moral legitimacy for acts no occupier could do, largely by lever- leveraging the terror of the Islamists against them. That terror was an essential part of Saeed Quds thinking as it would force Muslim populations to make choices, which they did, just not ones Islamists thought they ought to. End of quote. Uh, I would also say that in the Horn of Africa and Yemen, this is the case where one has Shia and Sunni pitted against each other. Now, as far as my notion that no Islamist insurgency has been defeated by Western coin, I stand by that. I am going to examine what CF says here, because I think it brings up an interesting point, maybe even a um, a professional or ideological blind spot on my part, because his notion is Islamist insurgencies have been defeated by Islamists. I will examine that, and thank you, CF, for that notion. A.H. wrote me and said, quote, I've been enjoying your Chasing Ghost podcast. Thank you. Recently, I watched the 1990s movie Geronimo, and I'm looking forward to when, if you discuss the Native American, the Aboriginal insurgencies, how they were handled, and your thoughts around the whole topic, not just Geronimo. A.H., that is a future podcast, to, especially when it comes to Geronimo. But I plan on going back to the 16th, 17th, and 18th century to for the germination of what I consider the genocidal campaigns by North American European colonists against the aboriginals on in the countryside. So, indeed, I am going to cover that in the future. CN writes me, quote, Ever since I heard of your podcast during your appearance on C.J. Kilmer's Dangerous History podcast, I've been an avid listener and look forward to a new episode every week. Your series on T.E. Lawrence has been especially of interest to me. There is so much about the man that I didn't know, end of quote. And he says, P.S., I also loved your The Dash podcast as a newbie to Stoicism and inspired me to explore this school of philosophy further and incorporate some of the principles into my own life, end of quote. The Dash, I I planned on doing fortnightly episodes where every other weekend I would do either Chasing Ghosts or The Dash. I sort of ran out of steam on The Dash. I'm hoping to resurrect it again. The frequency will probably not be fortnightly. I've gotten positive feedback on the dash. Uh, Those of you who haven't listened to it, give it a listen, see what you think, and uh, I appreciate that. Uh, The final email I'll draw from uh, out of the, I've mentioned some of the more extraordinary ones and ones that were really heartfelt. There's a number of others that I didn't include in this. I I wanted to uh, send a shout out to all of my listeners and correspondents who have gotten back to me with both constructive criticism and Hazanas, and thank you for that. Last one today from NH is classic examples of an eccentric who shunned by the modern-day U.S. Army, and uh, 
what this comes from is I my, my last episode on Lawrence. It was the third episode in my TE Lawrence treatment. I talked about military tolerance for eccentrics and why European armies, especially British armies, tend to be much more tolerant of eccentric and extraordinary behavior than the U.S. Army is. The U.S. Army is very hidebound and opposed to anybody who doesn't fit within a certain category. NH says, quote, classic examples of an classic example of an eccentric who was shunned by the modern day U.S. Army. McGregor had a brilliant mind. This is Colonel Douglas McGregor. Thought way outside the box, read and wrote extensively and challenged entrenched conventional thinking. Because of that, the generals made sure he'd never make it above colonel or even command a brigade, despite the fact that he is probably the only American officer alive who actually fought and won a combined arms battle, 73 Easting. I urge all of my listeners to look that up against a near-peer adversary, in this case, Iraq. If you ever need an example of conformity, groupthink, and risk aversion in the general officer corps, look at how this officer was treated by the brass, end of quote. NH, yes, yay and verily. When it comes to the current Ukrainian-Russian conflict, which is the, as, as, a, uh, as an observer of war and conflict my entire adult life, I have never seen a conflict like Russian-Ukraine in which I can't trust any of the source material that I'm exposed to, especially the news. But the one person I do listen to when it comes to this is straight calls or straight talk with Colonel Douglas McGregor on whatever show he happens to be on or whenever he's um, he's given his presentations. I, I think he is just dead on in his assessments of what's going on over there. So thank you, NH. Very insightful. So that concludes the Memorial Day mailbag. This may be an annual treatment that I do to um, to process um, what I find to be extraordinary listener correspondence or things that they've brought to my attention. I wanted to send out a hearty thanks and goodwill to everybody who has taken the time and had the patience to listen to my podcast series. Yes, this is episode 17. I am doing these fortnightly. This, uh, this particular episode will find its way onto your favorite podcast provider on Memorial Day. And again, Memorial Day for me is not a celebration. It is confirmation that for the most part, what America has done in the past and what America is doing now tends to be morally suspect and not very well done. I leave you with the fact that there is a reason America has not won a conflict since 1945. This is Bill Bubert. You can get in touch with me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. Slings and arrows are accepted. Constructive criticism is accepted. And let me know what you think. This is Bill, out.